welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Every story written using StoryWorth is private, but for this podcast, the writers volunteered to share their stories publicly with you. We're hard at work prepping for season two of the podcast. In the meantime, we have another special episode for you. It's autumn, falling leaves, decorative gourds, sweater weather, pumpkin spiced, everything. And if your neighborhood is like mine, things are starting to look a little spooky. To help you get into the Halloween spirit, we're here with a chilling special, sharing some brushes with the unexplained, the unsettling, the eerie, and the spooky. Okay, let's get this party startled. I mean, started. Our first story comes from writer Victoria Dodge, titled, What is Victoria's Secret? Let's find out. In high school in the late 60s, I dated the son of the local mortician, Mark Seabrook. Everyone knew of Seabrook Funeral Home, having been in business since 1920, and many people knew Mark. He had a great sense of humor, a necessity when dealing with death and dying on a daily basis. One Valentine's Day, he picked me up in a hearse, telling me we needed to drop off a body before going out with another couple. Being the squeamish girl I was at 16, I told him there was no way I was getting into a vehicle with a dead body. He assured me in that smooth, son-of-a-mortician manner that there was nothing to worry about. The person was deceased. He said it would make his job easier to go to the funeral home and drop off the body on our way out to dinner, rather than running to the funeral home and then having to come back and pick me up. Reluctantly, I climbed into the front seat, and sure enough, there was a body in the back, covered with a sheet. I kept my eyes fixed on the form under the sheet, deathly still as we drove. Mark tried unsuccessfully to distract me. He told me a story of another family who had purchased a white dove to be released at a graveside. Expected to be an uplifting reminder of the spirit taking flight, Mark's dad cued his associate, manning the cage to release the dove. When the cage was opened, instead of winging its way into the heavens, the dove hopped out onto the ground, where it was immediately seized by a hawk, who flew to the low branch of a nearby tree and began to enjoy its dinner. His dad excused everyone, and, sadly, the funeral screeched to an abrupt halt. That was the end of the graveside service, and the dove. While laughing at the story, I refused to take my eyes off the body. Suddenly, Mark jammed on the brakes and an arm fell out from beneath the sheet. I screamed. Then the body sat up and began laughing. It was Mark's friend Rex with whom we were going on a double date. Once my heart stopped pounding and I composed myself, they made me get under the sheet and go through the same scenario when they picked up Rex's date. Mark sure knew how to show a girl a good time, and he always brought me flowers. 
Even though they were secondhand from the funeral home, it was a lovely gesture. When my brother died at 36 in 1991, and my dad at 94 in 2009, we called Mark, who had taken over his dad's business, to handle the funeral arrangements. Through the years, we maintained a relationship with him, even though my husband and I had moved all over the U.S. When my sweet mother died at 92 in 2016, she had told us to have Seabrooks perform her funeral. She had planned the songs, chosen the casket, and the dress she wanted to wear— The dress was a pink one she had worn to our daughter's wedding. Mom always tried to make things easier for us three. She was always a generous person, caring more for others than for herself, and she had told my brothers and I to give all of her clothes away to help needy people. Mom always had a heart for the underserved. Taking her literally, we got rid of everything except the pink dress in which she had requested to be buried. There was one other item that I kept, a small black dress I found in her closet. When my brother had called to say mom was hospitalized and not expected to live, I left Indianapolis immediately and drove to New Albany without going home to pick up clothes for myself. I did not have a little black dress, did not want to have to purchase one while mourning my mom, dealing with funeral plans, and helping my brothers clear out her house. So... I decided she wouldn't care if I wore her little black dress to her funeral. The day before the funeral, I drove to Seabrooks and dropped off the pink dress. Mark had assured me they didn't need shoes or stockings. Uh, After returning home, Mark called saying, you didn't drop off any underwear. I'm sorry, I didn't even think about them needing that. The mortician needed it immediately, so I took a clean set of my Victoria's Secret underwear to him so that he could finish up his work. So, Victoria's secret is that mom wore my underwear into her heavenly home, and I, Victoria, wore her little black dress to her funeral to celebrate her life. Our next story comes from Dale Robinson, a tale of childhood fears of things that go bump or growl in the night. This is his story, The Greta in the Closet. Childhood isn't easy. In fact, it can be absolutely terrifying. You are very small, and you have very little control over anything in your life. Plus, there's a monster who lives in your closet, and your parents don't believe you. I'm not talking about the kind of monster we all imagine. You know, the terrifying creature who is apparently allergic to blankets, fortunately for us. That dream usually goes something like this. When confronted by the monster, lay perfectly still, don't make any unnecessary movements that would call attention to yourself, and one split second before the monster can devour you, grab hold of the bedsheets and yank them over your head. Phew! That was close. No, this was not imaginary at all. I'm talking about a real monster that lived in my house. Though never seen, his deep growl was unmistakable. Just ask my mom. One night, the Greta or gorilla for all you adult listeners, made a believer out of her, too. I don't recall how long I feared the Greta, but I do know that he made his presence clearly known, always late at night, and sometimes multiple times on the same night. Routinely, I'd be awakened by his growl and feel frightened and unable to move. Eventually, I'd muster up enough courage to yell for help. Mom! Dad! On a few occasions, my dad responded, but usually it was my mom who answered the call. 
beyond explanation, somehow just her presence in the room drove the Greta away. The medicine growls would cease, which helped calm me down. Before retreating to her bedroom, my mother always assured me that I only had a bad dream. But I knew better. I most certainly heard him. The Greta was still in the house. On this particular night, exhausted by her numerous trips back and forth from her bedroom to mine, my mom laid down on the bed beside me. Before either of us could fall asleep, we both heard the fierce growl. Eyes wide, we looked at each other, alert to the threat. Instinctively, I felt a sense of fight or flight, but I also recall feeling vindicated. We'd both heard the Greta. The monster wasn't in my head. Indeed, the monster was in the house. Suddenly, my mom burst out in uncontrollable laughter. My fright turned to confusion and anger. What was so funny, mom? This was no laughing matter. It was time to take defensive action. Then, mom carefully explained the mystery. The monster was quite real, she said, but he didn't live in my closet. He had his own bedroom. In fact, she slept next to the monster. The Greta was only my dad, who had a terrible problem with snoring. Next up is a story from Jean Good. As she answers the question, have you ever had a supernatural experience or an experience you can't explain? Set in an Irish castle far away, she shares her brushes with the, perhaps, paranormal. My husband Dave and I took a trip to Ireland and Wales in 2017. We spent a few days around Dublin when we first landed, and unbeknownst to me, I broke my leg. Stress fracture, due to walking so much. Needless to say, it was very painful. After learning of my injury, I told Dave to go and take pictures wherever we went and that I would do my own thing, as I could not climb or walk quickly. I was standing by myself on the grounds of the Ross Castle when a little old lady walked up to me out of nowhere and asked if I was a Christian. In doing so, she called me by my name, saying, Jean. I said that I was, and she asked if she could pray for me. When I told her yes, she took my hands and we bowed our heads in prayer. After praying, while still holding my hands, she looked into my eyes and said, Jean, what did you learn? I thought for a moment and said, God doesn't always make things easy for us. He makes it difficult so that we learn to depend upon Him. Still looking in my eyes, she said, but? I was surprised by this. Next, she said, Jean, you are going to be okay. I told her that I thought she was right. She then told me that her name was Margaret, and she proceeded to show me a badge pinned under her jacket that spelled out Margaret. She said, Jean, those sparkles on my name are diamonds. At this point, I really thought I had been removed from this world and couldn't understand what had just occurred. I just know that it was special, and I was supposed to learn something. Margaret released my hands and said goodbye, then completely disappeared. I looked around to find myself totally alone. I will always cherish my experience with Margaret, and I believed I would see her again someday. Little did I know that I would see her again 
just a little over a year later. I was admitted to the hospital for high fever and racing heart rate, diagnosed as pneumonia and sepsis. When I first got to the room, I was sitting on the bed when an older lady came into the room and said that she was the night nurse. She said her name was Margaret. I looked at Dave and he looked at me. I told her, I have a very unusual story about a person named Margaret, but it was too long for me to explain. As would be expected, she never said, tell me anyway. I think she knew the story. Another oddity. I never saw Margaret again, even though she told me she was the night nurse. Another nurse came in several times during the night, but not Margaret. On this same trip to Ireland and Wales in 2017, Dave and I experienced something very unusual together. While researching Dave's eighth great-grandfather, we drove out into the Welsh countryside looking for Ellis's homestead. We had been told that the old stone house still stood, even though it was centuries old. The area was very desolate, with dirt roads and no noticeable signs of anyone or anything, except for a few cows. We were told that we'd arrive at an iron gate. We were instructed to enter the gate, then cross the field, and we would find the homestead on the other side. Dave parked the car next to a very tall stone fence circling an old graveyard. He proceeded to go through the iron gate in search of his ancestral home. I said I would stay in the car. Remember, I still couldn't walk very easily due to my broken leg. Dave took the car keys with him. After a while, I lowered my head and began to doze off. At that very moment, the flashers came on in the car and the car horn began honking loudly. I hadn't touched anything. I noticed the large hazard button in the car, so I pushed it, thinking that would cause everything to quit. It didn't stop honking and flashing. I couldn't get out of the car as David parked close to the stone wall, so there wasn't enough room to open the car door. So I sat with everything blaring and flashing. About five minutes later, I saw Dave come through the gate. He got within five feet of the car and everything stopped. No flashes and no honking. I explained the story and he proceeded to tell me that he never reached the homestead but began to feel uneasy about the same time he heard the horn honking in the distance. Due to all these feelings and noise, he decided to return to the car. In looking at the key fob, he also noticed that there was no button that would have caused the horn to honk. To this day, we don't know what to think, but for some unknown reason, we believe that Dave wasn't meant to find his ancestral home. Someone was trying to tell us there was danger in proceeding. For our grand finale, we have a ghost story set amongst crumbling Greek ruins on a dark and stormy night. Writer George Mason answers the question, what's the most scared you've ever been? While pleasure is an experience we eagerly look forward to and enjoy in the process, fear is unique because the pleasure comes after we get through it. Our knees may shake, our skin spit sweat, our words stammer as we buy a roller coaster ticket, rope up before a rock climb. 
face off with an adversary, or even enter our first spelling bee as a child. But after the action, as the adrenaline and cortisol are washed from our system, there is a strange sense of warmth and joy that blossoms from knowing you survived and that you have a new story, a new moment among the most memorable ones of your life. There have been many times in my life where I've been scared. Some have been silly, like asking for a prom date. A few mortifying, like giving my first speech or pacing in the lobby during my first monster movie. And a few truly terrifying, like my first auto accident or root canal. But one experience stands out because of its exotic and paranormal aspects. Plus, it's a story that I've promised to tell my granddaughter, Story, who asked me about such a time in my life. In 1976, I'd been kicking around Greece for nearly a year. During one period, I traveled with a lady, Debbie, staying on a small island, working the olive fields and writing my first effort at the great American novel that proved instead to be the great American paragraph. When winter set in, we decided to leave and hitchhike our way north toward the Albanian border to the city of Yenia, reputedly where Debbie's favorite baklava was made. Our first ride was in the back of a truck with two very curious and playful goats. We hopped out and spent a cold night in our sleeping bags in an olive orchard. The next day, we caught a few short hops along the road and by late day got a ride just as rain threatened and the winter sun threw long shadows across the remote land. In broken English, our driver pointed up a hill to a wide circle of stone ruins and he explained it was the Greek house of Anthony and Cleopatra, full of ghosts. To us, it sounded like a perfect place to sleep. As our shadows merged, we walked up the rock-strewn rise to the ruins. Suddenly, out of the forest flowed a herd of goats, and pushing them forward was a shepherd clad in a full black cloak, a droopy black hat like one a witch might wear, and a gnarled black shepherd's crook. I couldn't see his face, and he and the goats seemed to not notice us standing in their midst. He passed within ten feet of me while I, in my best Greek, tried to get his attention to ask if it was all right to camp at the ruins. Finally, he stopped and turned his head. I nearly jumped. His face was all sharp angles, long straggly hair clumped to his head, and his eyes electric blue, crazed. He stared at me then hissed like a cobra and continued on his way. Debbie and I looked at each other, confused and concerned. What did that mean? But since he and his charges were headed in a different direction, we shrugged it off and proceeded up the hill. The site was unmarked, but clearly had once been a large structure thousands of years prior. With our flashlights, we entered and discovered midway a room on each side. One room had fallen in on itself, leaving only a small space, just large enough for Debbie's bedroll. But the other space was still mostly intact, 
15 feet long with walls that curved up to a conical ceiling seven feet above. A hole had eroded in the middle of the ceiling, allowing the space to fill with night air and dying light. I chose this as my room. Once settled in, we decided to hike half a kilometer back to the road, where we'd seen a small taverna where we hoped to find food and company. Inside was the owner and his family, and they were pleased to have guests and serve us moussaka and plenty of cold retzina. While we ate and tried to talk in two unshared languages, the rain began, and we said our goodbyes and ran back to the hilltop ruins. Just as we arrived, lightning and thunder filled the sky, significantly adding to the spooky effect. Instant flashes of intense white light illuminated our surroundings only long enough to make the scene eerie, like the set for the Greek Chainsaw Massacre. I stepped inside my room, lit a candle that only added to the spookiness, and crawled into my bag as rain splattered through the hole in the ceiling. No sooner was I nestled in when Debbie entered through the arched stone doorway, a look of terror on her face. George, someone is outside. She motioned with her hand towards the corridor. I jumped up, quickly pulling on my boots. At that moment, a blast of lightning flashed above, filling the chamber with light. Within a second, a thunderclap rocked the air. I was certain the roof would collapse, but that fear was second to whatever Debbie had seen. I pulled out my buck knife, opened the blade, and hid it in my palm as best I could. Passing by Debbie, I told her to get ready to make a run to the taverna if anything bad was to happen. Wary, I stepped through the portal into the passage, quickly looking in both directions for movement or form. I could see nothing in the dark shadows. One step at a time, I slowly made my way toward the end that opened into the vast, shadowy interior. Another flash of lightning showed no one there except the shadows and shapes of stone piles. Relieved, I stood staring into the black, fearing to see anything move. I wasn't afraid of the ghosts of Roman soldiers or Greek partisans, but I was scared of that crazed blue-eyed shepherd who'd hissed and snarled at our trespass. Another flash followed quickly, with earth-moving thunder, showing nothing. Satisfied and feeling silly that all was well, I pocketed my knife and began to return to our cave. In that moment, a distant blast of light revealed him standing at the far end of the rock hallway. Tall, scraggly, menacing, my breath stopped, and instantly my body filled with those animalistic fight-or-flight chemicals. I reached back in my pocket to get my knife again, but in my haste I dropped it to the dark ground. Falling to my knees, I kept one eye on the now-darkened passage while I felt around for my weapon. I shouted to Debbie not to move, certain she couldn't hear me inside the chamber. And just then, my hand found the buck knife. I opened it and held it firm. 
ready to slash and thrust and fight to the death while I continued to stare into the darkness where I knew my enemy waited. Another flash of light from afar blinded me, but in that instant I saw clearly that my enemy wasn't the shepherd. It wasn't even human. Instead, it was only the silhouette of a treetop 20 feet past the opening. My monster was but an innocent tree that stood silently in the night, unknowing of the terror it had roused in me. On weak knees, but still keeping my knife ready, I made it back inside to discover Debbie asleep in her bag, as oblivious to the horror I had endured as that tree. Quietly, I slipped into my new sleeping bag, placed the open knife nearby, just in case, and blew out the candle. But the night was not over. My body was still full of those powerful hormones, my mind still racing with fears and grim fantasies. And every few minutes, another explosion of white light filled our chamber with less than a second of pure illumination. Just enough to disclose nothing in front of where I was looking, but all sorts of imagined menaces and harmful creatures lurking along the shadowy edges of my field of vision. And that, dear story, was the scariest moment of my life. We hope your Halloween is extra special. Keep calm and carry a wand. We'll be back in January with a whole batch of new episodes. But until then... <laughs> just try to skele run from my skele puns. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to get started writing your life stories or want to give the gift of story worth to a loved one, head over to storyworth.com slash podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe it's witchful thinking, but we would love it if you shared an episode with a friend. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. I'm your ghostess with the mostess, Krista Baum. Our producer is the fabulous Hannah Ray Leach, Catherine Nash, Scott Heisel, Nicole Corey, and Luke Brett were our batty voice actors for this episode. We get production help from the uncandy Jill Granberg. Our mix engineer is the fangtastic Sean Rule Hoffman. We'll see you next time. <laughs>